This is a production of Cornell University. Yeah, let's, let's get this ball rolling. Uh, thanks everyone for, for tuning in, listening, viewing, live audience, uh, eighth episode this year, the Cornell Turf Show. Uh, excited to have uh, our friend Dan Scheid, the director of grounds here at Cornell University, our big red grounds director. Um, so Dan, we're gonna talk to him today about some kind of unique things he's doing around campus, uh, things that, that uh, we'd like to share with everybody. Um, but as always, we'll start with a little uh, kind of weekly recap uh, from Frank, uh, as always, this morning. Carl, can you see the screen? Yeah, I can. Okay, there we go. Well, this is becoming a popular pastime these days. People uh, bringing flocks of flamingos. They, uh, I think people describe it as being flocked uh, when people come and do this to your lawn. So, Dan, we got to give the students the idea to do this around campus. Uh, in the meantime, um, let me highlight Rodney, uh, who's still working on this. Our, our guy uh, mowing lawns, raising men, uh, working now to um, create a more positive in image between uh, the community and law enforcement. And of course, this is a volatile and complex issue. And you got to love this guy uh, running across the country, creating dialogue, uh, getting people to work and talk together. And it's and it's a place where lawns which usually are divisive can be a place where we all come together and, and i'm always pleased to start at any time highlighting that uh but not if you're a mole uh i know we have a i have a close friend that many people know dave chinnery one of our extension faculty uh in the capital district is has been on a personal mission uh to to eradicate moles <laughs> from his lawn and landscape um this is uh not reared its head as much as voles uh, I do hear people talking about it, but this is what it's like when you harpoon uh, or you snap trap a mole. Uh, it's not a pleasant situation. This was a golf course superintendent in the Midwest. Uh, so just in case you think you're having a bad day. Um, another shout out here, Carl, to the National Lawn Care folks. Uh, this April is Lawn Care Month. Uh, and I think uh, one of the things we are trying to do here at Cornell in our extension program and certainly at with our county-based uh, faculty in, in extension world, uh, extension agents like Dave and Jennifer, um, uh, Hillary, Marie, uh, Victoria in, in Connecticut, Joelle, and everybody who works out in the field. You know, we're trying to make, uh, what does grass do for us? What role does this plant system play uh, you know, in society, if you want to be climate smart, if you want to be water quality uh, conscious, if you live around a lake. So, you know, I think there's ways of highlighting these things and national associations are jumping on that. All right, let's get in the weeds, uh, so to speak. Uh, just to remind everybody, while I look out at 30 degrees and snow <laughs> here in upstate New York, I'm sure Dan had to get out of the truck and looking at salting and you know, uh, I don't think plowing, but certainly salting operations around campus today. Uh, that can be a co topic of conversation, but it's important to know that we're much well ahead of normal. Uh, you, you know, you look out in Buffalo and the east end of Long Island throughout the region, you see that in general, uh, the growing season is a week or two ahead of normal, just, you know, counting it up over the last several weeks. You can go back further and it's likely even further ahead of normal. Now, where it's white, it means that they really haven't accumulated any base 50 growing degree days, right? These base 50 growing degree days are the degree days where we think biological activity gets going. It's where we measure 
the way the growing season gets going, much like we measure uh, growing seasons for vegetables like between uh, frost-free dates. Well, it's also important to know that the real story getting out of the gate is not that it's been warm, right? And we've been talking about that forever with, with the way the climate's been changing. Uh, but where are we relative to moisture? Now, if you look over the last month, you can see that throughout much of the Northeast, you know, you know, once you get north of the Pennsylvania border, it's 25 to 75 percent of normal precipitation. It's a bit on the dry side. Now, you know, as we say every week, wherever if it's a Thursday or Friday and wherever Rich Buckley is, it's likely raining. And no surprise, much of New Jersey, Long Island, the metropolitan New York area, southeastern Connecticut, Orange County, uh, had a lot of rainfall, uh, excessive rainfall, one, two inches or more in the past week. But in general, a lot of the region has persistently been dry. And so you look at the drought map that came out on Thursday, and you can see already these things that are more longer term, as I've you know learned from my colleague, R.T. Gaetano, longer term measures of precipitation. We start to see that again, uh, Western New York, uh, Western Pennsylvania, the Adirondacks, Northern New England, and as usual, Southeastern New England, you know, along Connecticut, Rhode Island, you're getting and still have drought conditions. It's been abnormally dry. Now, <laughs> lest you think uh, we have real dry weather, I, I ask you to just put it in perspective with what our colleagues and, and fellow citizens out West are experiencing places like uh, Nevada, Colorado, Utah, the governor has already started to, um, you know, discuss restrictions, planning for restrictions in the state of Utah and relative to lawns. And we can get Paige Boyle on later in the, in the, in the, in the turf show as the weeks go on to talk about the way they have to water out there to provide that turf. Cause should we get into a dry condition, we're going to want to understand that a little bit better and where, where better to do it than out West. Now, as we move into sort of where we are in the season, I think the thing that gets everybody's attention early on is the generally how quick is the grass greening up? Do I have to mow it yet? And what weeds are growing? Well, if you're looking at weeds now that are really actively growing, uh, things like annual bluegrass, uh, henbit, in this case, this is a picture of purple dead nettle, right? Henbit that is starting to grow probably you'll see seedlings of some perennials now. Um, if you're gonna do some broadleaf, post-emergent broadleaf weed control to these populations of plants, you wanna get them pretty quickly now. I would recommend spot treating them in places if you felt like you had to do it, if they were really disrupting the quality of the site. But once they get into warm weather and flowering, they're gonna die, right? They're gonna die. So if, you, if these are objectionable now, you might want to do some spot treating and then get some seed in the ground, right? Get, get some grass growing uh, and, and maybe even a, a fertilizer shot, but we'll talk about that. All right, here's the progression of soil temperatures and you can see not very much. It's a little bit warmer. You're starting to see a little bit more into the 50s now, but most into the high 40s. Uh, and, and, and you got to get down to South Jersey into the Delmarva uh, till you get into the fifties on a regular basis. And yesterday in the podcast, uh, in the, in the show with, uh, uh, John Inguijado at Connecticut, we talked about, you know, it's not just a blip. It's like how soil is something that warms over time or, you know, getting warm and staying warm is, is how 
uh, biological organisms evolve and persist through the year. Uh, so, so just, uh, you know, temperature fluctuations here or there. The story here is, you know, it's barely getting into the 50s in most places. Now, usually what happens, again, uh, what we think about is I got to get my weed and feed out. I got to get my weed and feed that has pre-emergent crabgrass control in it. And so when you have uh, that mindset uh, to get your pre's down, you can see that the green is the ideal time uh, for pre-emergent applications. And we are really in that ideal time throughout much of the Northeast with just a little bit on the early side and, and again, on the later side, but still okay, uh, you know, down into Delmarva. So you certainly have a couple of weeks yet. Now, what does this relate to? Well, you know, obviously, if you're looking at pre-emergent crabgrass control in a lawn care setting, you, you know, you're trying to tie it into when the crabgrass germinates and get that barrier down and active before it germinates. Now, if you're a lawn care operator that's trying to spray 3,000 lawns, as we talk about oftentimes, it's going to take you a while to get that done. And so consequently, you try to get it down early. Now, one of the things you have to understand is if the germination is not going to happen for a few weeks, which I think we can say with some confidence it's not going to happen for a few weeks, um, you get that pre-emergent down and then it's going to wear out while seedlings are still emerging later in the season or break down uh, more rapidly. Now, this is going to be slowed and changed based on soil conditions. If it's really dry, probably not going to break down very much. And also if it's really dry, not a lot of weeds are going to be germinating. So, you know, you want to keep these things uh, in mind as you think about timing and persistence of these herbicide applications that you make. So we use the old fashioned phenological indicators, you know, generally around forsythia bloom, full bloom is where you start to see uh, some early germinants in open areas of crabgrass, but we're still a little ways from that. And it's important to understand when you look at how crabgrass emerges, that it emerges slowly over a long period of time. It's not necessarily something that happens all at once. And so having that barrier coinciding with the germination in, a, you know, where crabgrass is a big problem for you is important to use that chemical as, as wisely as possible. Now, the other thing I think, of course, we're thinking about in the springtime is fertilization. And I'll just draw your attention again, as we start to think about these things, uh, particularly when they have water quality concerns, and more and more people are going to be concerned about that, as they should be. And especially in the lawn and grounds area where you got a lot of grass abutting or right next to pavement, you want to be really mindful when you put something down. If it spills there, you got to clean it up. You don't want to get it. You don't want to get it into the drain. You want to make sure it gets into the canopy so it can't run off with a heavy rainfall right into a sewer. So, you know, these areas are very high risk when we don't actually think about it much like that. And so in this publication, I'll draw your attention to how they recommend fertilizing. Now, for example, if you go in and you fertilize just once a year, right? One of the things that's really important is you just don't see a lot of people recommending early spring fertilizer. Maybe you fertilize twice a year. They want you to get it on a little bit early, greater than 50% at slow release, and less than nine-tenths of a pound of total nitrogen. So again, 
in non-sensitive areas, right? Areas where there maybe isn't surface water, maybe where you don't have to worry about spilling it on the pavement if you're making two applications. Obviously, when you get to three and four applications, uh, you can see that the nitrogen gets spread out over the course of the year. So if you're putting it down four times, this is saying you're putting on about three and a quarter pounds, uh, uh, four times, three and a quarter pounds of nitrogen, uh, at least half of it as slow release. Right, you get to one, uh, two applications a year, you're about, you know, 1.8, right? If you're making two fertilizer applications a year. Now, there's a totally different mindset if you're thinking about environmentally sensitive areas, right? If you're thinking about near where you have water quality issues, where you have lakes, where you have pavement, where it, their risk gets a little bit higher right next to the pavement, right next to the lake, right? No surprise here. So you notice, again, not much fertilizer recommended in the early part of the year, and certainly no fertilizer ever recommended during summer months, right? When nitrogen is probably coming free from the soil anyway. So really important to remind yourself, that's a very easy publication to get your hands on. It's available online. I think we connect to it on our website if we, not, if we don't. Uh, Carl, we'll be sure to put that link up. Now, as I welcome my pal here, uh, let me introduce him a little bit. I got a couple of things to set him up for our discussion today. And first is, you know, of course, you know, I'm going to embarrass him. I told him I was going to do it when we were finishing our beverages on, on, uh, on Wednesday evening. I, you know, professional grounds management, professional lawn care, right? Professional golf course superintendents, professional sports turf managers. When you, you know, get paid to do this at the highest level, there's an expectation that not only are you know the technical stuff and there's an assumption that you can navigate your way through that, but that you can lead. And that you can, you know, have a plan for what you're going to do. And you have an operation that has processes and maybe even standards if you're lucky, right? And so Dan, of course, has this great website he maintains here. Uh, and in that website, it articulates a little bit about core level surfaces, fee-based surfaces, uh, services that he offers uh, quite a bit. You know, obviously Dan's talking about how much lawn he's maintaining. There's obviously a complex landscape of trees and shrubs, you know, 40 miles of storm and sanitary sewers, you know, lawn areas that are damaged by construction. All this stuff costs a little bit more to maintain. But again, you know, the key here I'm trying to highlight is you look at lawns and you look at it in the grounds operation and operationally. When you're a professional, it's important to have that broad view. Now, of course, Dan's big initiative that he had at the University of Rochester and obviously brought here with us uh, over the years has been this tall grass, less gas initiative where we had started to do some of this around campus prior to his arrival. But obviously, when he came here, he really embraced it and has promoted these areas. And I can tell you, there simply isn't a higher profile area on the Cornell campus than here on Live Slope. And of course, as you look across some of these natural areas right on Live Slope, in and amongst the oaks uh, on Live Slope, you see these wonderful vistas that people take pictures of uh, post win us awards. Uh, but he's also done this in other areas on campus. So as we translate this, you know, into a lawn landscape, right? How does this is how is this going to look in a lawn? Is anybody actually going to like this if we put this into a lawn landscape? Is there 
Is there a value to this in the lawn landscape? And so I'll draw your attention to uh, some uh, thinking that's going on at the University of Minnesota that we've certainly highlighted in the past. And I know Dan uh, gets involved in here is, is imagining lawns as having different management levels. Nothing, none of these systems are no management, right? Even rain gardens, none of these systems are no management. There's some level of management, but as a turf grass manager, sometimes we never really think much beyond just the traditional turf. And I think we're seeing, particularly in, you know, progressive environments like a place like Cornell, interesting in expanding our understanding of to uh, address the spectrum of ways you can use these vegetated surfaces in the landscape. And of course, communicating that. Dan's got the signs and you wouldn't believe I'm on this campus every day, Dan. And I actually don't have a picture of these signs uh, that you use on campus. But I know my colleague at uh, our colleague, Jennifer Lerner, uh, down in Putnam County has done a lot with developing these pollinator gardens and creating a pollinator pathway system. And I believe the Cornell campus is becoming part of this pollinator pathway. And it's really just a way of imagining uh, managing the lawn and the landscape in a way that has services. So Dan, I'm, I'm gonna welcome you to the show. Uh, thanks for being patient while I ranted for the past 15 minutes. And I have a couple of questions up here that I'll leave up there uh, for now. I wanna look at you on the side so you can see them there. And so this is uh, what I wanted to chat with you about today. Again, not just the technical stuff like I introduced earlier, but also the mindset that you approach the management of the lawns uh, on this Cornell campus. You know, what's evolved, right? You know, I, I hate to break it to you. You did retire from one place and, and now you're at this place. Um, I wonder how you've seen this evolve at two institutions. You know, how lawn is viewed by your customers and how it's maintained by you and the adaptations you might have made uh, over the years. So welcome to the show, Dan. Good to see you. Um, how do you want to approach this really big question? Well, it's, it's interesting, Frank. So I, I came to Cornell <clears throat> and of course you're here. And so there's a lot of practices, the campus being this living laboratory, there's stuff that, that happens here that happens here sooner than maybe many other places. So um, I came from a campus at University of Rochester where you know, we mowed it two and a half inches, we uh, ran the weed eater along the edges of the sidewalks and we keep this nice, you know, more manicured uh, look to the, to the campus. And came here and at your guidance over, over the years and, and the acceptance and, and the professionalism of the staff here, they picked up and started mowing the lawns at three and a half inches. Um, which, as you can imagine, um, has all the benefits that we talked about, right? Deeper root system, less uh, weed invasion. I mean, all the, all the things that you promote were already in place when they came here. And I have to tell you, my first look at the campus was, oh, that looks different. And now I, it didn't only took me a couple of weeks and I love it. Because you can tell the difference between a two and a half inch lawn and three and a half inch lawn. And uh, now I can't even tell the difference anymore. And, uh, um, a lot of the lawns here on campus have been seeded, overseeded, or sodded with uh, tall fescue, uh, turf type tall fescues. Again, at your recommendation for all the reasons that you recommend this, you know, drought tolerance and, 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 all, and wearability and all the various things. So, 
a lot of things were in place. And so the difference is I came from a campus that was, you know, more maintained on a, on a, on a more, um, on a schedule of, you know, weed control and all that to a campus that says, hey, we're a sustainable campus, right? We're not gonna just, uh, we're gonna try to manage things as best we can with fewer inputs. And one of the, probably the easiest thing you can do is raise your mower right off the bat. And, and so that was already in place. And, and I think a lot of those things work for us. And so in addition to raising the mowing height, we completely eliminated or reduced mowing in a number of areas that you've really moved to. And that also has its sort of, ooh, that looks different. That has its own sort of, ooh, that looks different. There you go. Thanks for doing that, Dan. Really appreciate that. So, so people say, ooh, that looks different. And um, talk a little bit about how uh, this started and has evolved. Well, I think if you're going to do something different, Frank, right, you have to tell people what you're doing. Because if you drove by this, this is at the main intersection on campus. Yeah. It's a slope that was a little hazardous to mow. It was probably just a little over the, the degrees that you would want to mow. Um, and uh, if we just didn't mow it, it looked like our lawnmower broke down or we were lazy or we didn't know what we're doing. So I think it's important, like you have with that pollinator garden, you know, to some people it might look, well, how come they're not doing anything here? There's all these wildflowers, why do they have goldenrod here and all this kind of stuff. So you educate folks and we're an educational institution. So in conjunction with our um, sustainability division that uh, says, you know, Cornell's gonna be carbon neutral by 2035 um, I work with them, I talk with them, they help develop um, a prototype for this sign for me, which also says underneath it, if you get up close, you know, helping Cornell achieve its goal of carbon neutrality by 2035. So we're telling people what we're doing. Um, and I probably could add to this, you know, we're creating pollinator habitat as well. I probably could modify the sign and, and go to the next level with it. So in addition, say, and in addition, creating pollinator habitat, which I may do in the next rendition of signs. Well, and since you brought it up, Dan, um, there's two other components that I want to talk about. One is obviously the mowings evolved. And before we get to the pollinator stuff, let's talk for a second about the way you think uh, nutrient management, fertilization and weed control might have evolved uh, in the way you're two, you've done it at the two institutions. Well, at both institutions and even here, um, we scout and we only treat the worst areas, um, high profile and worst areas. So and that was in place before I got here. In fact, here they have more wonderful maps than I had at Rochester. I just had a campus map and I'd highlight and throw the square footage in for the company that came in to do the treatment for us because we we were just too too taxed with other work to actually get out and and and, uh, and get the, the weed control done at the right time. The challenges you have on a, on a college campus are fitting, fitting your um, work around the students, right? You don't want to be out there and shutting down a portion of the campus for 24, 48 hours um, and the students can't use it, and uh, let alone the, the phone calls you might get from concerned parents. So we try to, we just had that discussion today. Uh, we've got a crabgrass problem on the arts quad, and I was talking to Kevin about it, said, well, you know, you think we can get something in? It was pretty isolated. We can identify the areas and just get a straight pre-emergent control, no fertilizer, so we don't have to worry if an area we know didn't have it, we won't have striping or different colors. So we're talking about, he goes, well, you know, they're going to have 
uh, Cornell Wellness Days out there for the students, and they're going to have uh, movies starting on the Art Squad in another couple weeks. They're going to have movies out there. So then the discussion obviously changed from, well, do we go from pre-emergent to post-emergent once the students leave? You know, so we're having, those are the kind of conversations you have here that you might not have um, in a, a commercial site. You know? Well, but at the same time, Dan, you know, I can tell you, there's not a person in this, who works in this business all the time that doesn't appreciate the out of sight, out of mind phrase, right? I mean, we, you know, I think it's, it's it, you know, people use pesticides even in places where they're highly restricted. They use them at Central Park under a very controlled way. They use them here in a very controlled way, in a targeted way, not so much Maybe in the past, it was more of a blanketed approach where, you know, everything got a pre-emergent, everything got some fertilizer, everything got a broadleaf application, especially before graduation. And whether you're in the home lawn market or the golf course market, you know, you're, you know, you want to sort of stay a little bit out of people's minds, especially in the lawn care industry where, you know, blowers have to get involved to make sure you're cleaning the pavement and stuff like that. So I think it's one thing, you know, you've obviously been able to, continue that practice of having strategic chemical use but the growing interest in this pollinator enhancement in the uh, aspect of the landscape is is going to at some point likely going to bring up some discussion further beyond exposure to students in general you know how much are you using these other things and i would say other as really any other pesticide any pesticide when you're now concerned about being part of the pollinator pathway. So how do you see that conversation uh, evolving uh, over the next several years as all of us start to see how big of a deal this conversation is going to be in the lawn and landscape area? Well, I think the, uh, the bee lawn, right, which is just coming to, coming to a campus near you, uh, we've got a group of students that want to uh, get involved in the uh, bee lawn area. You know, I think um, it, it like anything, it'll have to be a mindset. Um, like anything with, you know, we, you and I have talked about the term maintenance and management, right? Maintenance is up to you, just continual repair. You just go out and you do it. Management is you look at it and you establish like you do with IPM for pests, you do the same thing with weeds. What's your threshold? What can you tolerate in a certain area? And I think our threshold for weeds um, will uh, increase that will, you know, we'll go from two dandelions per acre um, that then you got to go out and treat down to, you know, four dandelions per square foot or something. I mean, I don't know, you know, I throw those out there, but at some point you're going to, the threshold um, and your tolerance will increase. I do see that happening. And that's already happening here at Cornell. We, we don't get, um, since I've been here and we've, we've reduced, the, the lawns were prior to my coming had been uh, let go a little bit, according to, to Kevin and he had got them back in shape and, you know, with a pretty rigorous program. And we've been able to scale back from that now because of the work he did to get things under control and now target our approach. Um, I don't know if we'll do away with it completely, but I do see more and more reductions coming. I think that's, I think we might see that. I don't know if we're going to see that in the residential landscape. You and I have talked about it. People still want that green postage stamp in front of their house, but you know, you look at what's happening in Minnesota where they're giving out grants, they give out $900,000 worth of grants for people to turn their lawns into bee, bee habitat. Um, so, yeah. well, yeah, money, but yeah, I, I think you're right. I think when people start putting their money where their mouth is, uh, I think there is going to be, like you said, 
an evolving uh, aesthetic. But there's one thing that isn't evolving, Dan, as we're getting close to the to the wrap up here. I want to see if there's any questions. But I got to ask you, with snow on the ground outside, this is when I worry the most about uh, sidewalk turf that you're still going to put some salt out there today. And that grass is broke dormancy. It's a heck of a lot greener today than it was just a week ago. You know, we've had pretty consistently warm temperatures uh, or even if not warm, sunny. And sunny heats the pavement, breaks the dormancy of the plants next to it. You don't have graduation uh, this year, I don't think, or maybe I don't know about in-person stuff, but we still got dead grass along the sidewalk. Did you make a decision today to try to mitigate that damage or do you just now get into repair zone and how do you manage that stuff right along the edge of the sidewalk now? We're, we're going to have to repair. Uh, we can't, we can't, uh, the liability of not doing anything um, is, uh, you know, is just, we just can't have that. What about safer salts? Uh, if you can afford them, you know, I got 61 miles of sidewalk and 15 miles of the road. So, um, you know, if, if now what we have gotten is better metering on our equipment. And I had a chat with all of our staff before this snow said so temperatures are going to be warmer. We don't need as much product out. So close the gates down, slow things down a little bit. We don't need to put as much out because there's, there's an incredible relationship between how salt works. I mean, between 30 and 25 degrees, salt loses two thirds of its capability. At 30 degrees, a pound of salt melts 45 pounds of ice and at 25 degrees it only melts 15 so i mean the exponential it's big deal <laughs> but so the other morning when it was snowing out it was 34 degrees you know we can i mean it was almost melting without salt so the change we had was the refreeze last night when it got cold so the uh, see this is listen we're getting we're getting close dan but this is why we got to have you back this salt conversation is a conversation in my mind uh, of its own. I mean, we have probably operations in New York State where most of their revenue comes from uh, managing salt in the, in the lawn and landscape business if they're doing some plowing. But listen, Carl, what about questions? What about questions? What, what, how are we doing? We're getting close. Yeah, so, so Ben uh, Palmer has a good question. He's asking about, uh, Dan, what are some of your communication strategies in, deal, in dealing with, uh, for example, students or employees who are concerned about pesticide use. I know we talked about the long grass, less gas signs. Uh, have you had any strategies dealing with, with the community stakeholders in terms of pesticide use? Yeah, I, I will tell you, since I've been here, I've probably only had three phone calls um, in the five uh, growing seasons I've been here um, relating to that from a parent. Uh, uh, and a lot of it was discussing kind of what we used, you know, sharing with them, um, you know, that products have things called LD50s and everything, you know, just having a conversation a little bit about the science of it without, without trying to, 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 to um, justify it. Yeah, to, to just say that, you know, we, we, we use the safest products we, we can use and, and here's why and here's the reason why we use it. Why do you use weed control? Well, some kids have bee allergies and we want to be mindful of that that's one of the issues with the tall grass we got issues with rodents and ticks and other things that can come in those tall grass areas so it's not as simple as just well just do it but you everything you do has some other side um sidebar some other so, so so i guess dan i would say the answer to ben's question is try to be as transparent as you can when they call you but i don't i mean other than the signs 
I think there is this out of sight, out of mind. You try to stay way, you know, minimizing their exposure to it, uh, using products that are targeted, uh, no, not, not doing it when they're around or likely to encounter it. All of these things are critical aspects to, I think, talking about the mindset you have, that it isn't a blanketed approach, right? It isn't a blanketed and, approach. I think your point, timing is important. So we missed the spring weed control window because of commencement and reunion and all that stuff. So we've gone to October as our next best. So we do our, our weed control application in the fall when students are on fall break. So they leave campus, we do the application. Um, generally, the signs can be removed before they come back, or if they're still there, it doesn't matter. We're not trying to hide anything from them. They can still ask, but we, we don't, we try not to do it when, when there's a high student population. And that's a challenge. Working yep. Around. Yep. And that's a great question that can be a topic of many conversations when you get a bunch of professional land managers around. So Carl, Dan, let me thank you in advance. Uh, thanks again. I'll look forward to our next beverage. Uh, soon, I hope. And uh, Carl, uh, take us out of here. Yes. Uh, thanks, everyone. Episode eight of the Cornell Turf Show in the books. Uh, again, thanks to Dan Scheid, Frank Rossi for, for stewarding us through this episode. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. Hopefully, we're going to talk about some more infield skin stuff next week uh, and some ways to quantify that. That'll be pretty cool for our Friday uh, webinar next week. Opening but, uh, day. It's opening, opening day, day, man. Baseball is underway, <laughs> baby. I sat and watched four innings yesterday. The damn Yankees, you know, you can't win scoring two runs, brothers. You know, we didn't pay all that money to get two runs. That's all I got to say about that. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll check back in with everybody next week. Hopefully the Yanks have won a couple more for our Yankees yeah. fans out there. So uh, thanks everyone for joining. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks, Dan. This has been a production of Cornell University on the web at cornell.edu.